know, every now and then I think you might like to hear something from us. Nice and easy. But there's just one thing, you see. We never, ever do nothing nice and easy. We always do it nice and rough. And we're going to take the beginning of this song and do it easy. But then we're going to do the finish. Rough. The way we do Proud Mary. I pledge allegiance. pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, not as though your kidney were infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. Now, just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Let's get rocking! Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and joining me today in his Movies at Rock debut is my friend, Mr. Nick Bamback. How are you? Good. How are you, Josh? I'm good. Thanks for joining me today. I've been really excited to do this one. For those who may not have seen the uh, the title of the episode, we're going to be talking about Tina Turner today, and, and Tina has played a huge part of my, uh, my um, rock and roll life, that's for sure. Oh, she's, she is the queen of rock and roll. Absolutely. She is. Like you said, when we when we got started, she is simply the best. Better than the rest. <laughs> she, well, she well, is. not the rest because we can't exclude other people. So, you know. That's true. <laughs> that is very true. So I don't know about that line now, but no, she she really is the best. She, I'm, I'm really is. looking forward to talking about Tina. She's she's just the ultimate survivor story in rock and roll. It's It's, it's unlike any other performer I could think of. Absolutely. So real quick, let's let's get to know you a little bit, Nick. Tell us a little about yourself. I know you um, were saying you have a film studies degree, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, so I, um, I have two master's degrees. I have one in film studies that I got at Ohio University about four years ago. And then so cool. I actually completed last year, I got my MLS degree in library science. Oh, cool. That was something I... I gave serious consideration to studying way back in the day, but I ended up finding other, other avenues, but yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. It's really great. I get to teach like library instruction classes. Um, I get to work the reference desk. I've got to help uh, students and faculty members with their ongoing research projects. It's, it's really great. And I like it because it gives me a chance to work with the scholars and the students, but also kind of work on my own uh projects too and yeah. of course help the patrons i, I mean it's, it's a very rewarding job yeah so you do work as a librarian currently i do i work on um i work at st joseph's college in new york cool. on long island oh very cool yeah that that's excellent also i wanted to, to ask you because because you had mentioned with your film studies degree that you had kind of a an interest in biopics which i find absolutely fascinating and i kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that that is one of my primary research um topics that i did throughout grad school uh my my thesis focused on um issues of masculinity and uh contemporary hollywood comedies so like late mm. 90s to like you know the early 2010s and mm. i kind of did like different character tropes and tried to kind of have this um 
idea of like a crisis of masculinity uh, that was prevalent in the late 90s and then throughout the 2000s uh, in, in scholarship. Wow. Like, and that, that, I feel like general. that was not like a great time to be a woman in comedy. <laughs> no, no, not with the bromance movies that I oh, yeah. wrote about. Um, <laughs> you know, but it was really, um, yeah, I wrote a thesis on that. And um, one of my uh, favorite things to the chagrin of many of my colleagues was <laughs> biopics, because I always like biopics like that. Like, if I ever pick up a book, it's usually a biography or yeah. an autobiography. I don't know. I always like nonfiction, and I always like to learn about people's lives. Usually it's with a bent on, you know, the arts or, um, like, like history, stuff like that. Yeah. But, I mean, I've always really enjoyed biopics my whole, my whole life, really. Hmm. You, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I, I also, too, I, I love reading biographies. I love nonfiction. I love creative nonfiction. Biopics are kind of a tough sell for me. I got to be honest with you. Just really? sim- they are simply on the fact that, and, and th- this, um, the movie we'll be discussing today is, is no exception to this. Um, and it's not a criticism, but I, I do tend to find them to sometimes be off-puttingly formulaic. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and that can be kind of, that can some, I sometimes struggle with that a little bit. I think it's because this is what really interests me in a from a scholarly viewpoint is I'm always interested not what they put in the movie, but what they don't put in the movie. Uh, I think yeah. that to me, like, you know, like um, analysis of a person's life and then how they romanticize it. Or in this case, like in the movie we're going to talk about today, they just kind of make up some things, you know, just to kind of keep this narrative going. But mm-hmm. I think that's what even interests me in a lot of things. So like we're going to talk about probably later the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's not what's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's like, what is it in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Just like in Biopics, yeah. what's in a person, what, what isn't included in um, one's movie about themselves? And then, like, who's producing the movie? Who, yeah, because that can sometimes dictate what it. is included and what isn't included. Exactly. There's it's a lot of control and rewriting history and historiography. There's a lot of going on and biopics mm-hmm. I mean I like it for pure entertainment value but like from a, a objective standpoint a lot of them are very um, deceiving in terms of how they yeah. portray people and then I think it's also could be dangerous because you know like in the case with this movie like some of these actions are so re, um, so terrible that you can't even it, it could kill a person's uh, character and they're um legacy right that's true yeah and, and like you said today's movie is a really good example of that <laughs> oh yes yeah it is. i must I'm, I'm sometime we're gonna have to talk about um your feelings on bohemian rhapsody because it was such a controversial oh, film god okay like it's a good it's a good performance he did mm-hmm. do really well as freddie mercury but god it was such a terrible movie yeah. and it's like and, and i can't believe i mean it got a nomination for Best Picture, which is, like, great because, like, I love rock movies and rock-related biopics. But, I mean, yeah, if you know anything about Queen, it's just, like, it's just not... It's, to me, know. Bohemian Rhapsody is, is really, like, what sums up in a really tidy package uh, problems that I tend to have with a lot of biopics. To me, it just mm-hmm. it, to me it hit hit every mark that I, I struggle with when I watch biopics that that don't do 
their job, I guess. Like they, like the chronological order of like the songs. Like, there's no way they played a song that was a few years later as their first performance in a nightclub, right? In like 1969 or 1970, England. I, I think that was the year that yeah. they started. But I'm just saying, like a lot of it. It's just like uh, it's like like Rocket Man, for example, does the same thing in a weird way, where it's like like I don't think you could tell Freddie Mercury or. Elton John, or even like a David Bowie at a two-hour movie. I think they right. require like a mini series. Absolutely. Like I think Eddie, like Freddie Mercury in the eighties is way more interesting than anything he did in the seventies. Like For to sure. me, like that could have been an entire movie because I think that that's way more interesting mm-hmm. uh, part of his life. Even like Elton John, if they do a sequel to Rocket Man, which they probably will, I'd imagine, because yeah. it was successful. I think his 80s period is way more interesting than anything he did before or after. Yeah, because that's when he kind of found himself in a lot of ways, you know? And that's when, like, his popularity declined a little. Yeah. And then, like, the rise of, like, AIDS. And, like, and then he became more of, like, a um, like a political and social activist. Yeah. his AIDS activism. So I think, like, to me, that would be way more interesting than, like, his career in the 70s, but that's just me, maybe. I No, I would love to see a movie like that, because clearly there, you know, in those two examples, there were stories and agendas that were being, you know, that they wanted to have, you know, um, or an agenda, I guess, I, to, to a degree, because, I mean, with a band like Queen, they know that they, that they can make a crowd-pleasing movie and a safe crowd-pleasing movie and make a lot of money. You know, rather than tell the most compelling story about Freddie Mercury's life, but but I think what's really great though about those two movies, though, isn't really that the movies aren't great because they're not. I don't think, <laughs> but I think that I would argue. That, I would younger... argue that Rocket Man is close to being great, but I oh, digress. <laughs> I gotta rewatch it because I think yeah. I, when I watched it, I just it just didn't catch. Maybe I was in like a bad mood, or I don't know. It just didn't mm. really do anything for me. Yeah, um, when I watched it. Um, but I think what's really great though about those two movies is that they're introducing younger audiences to these musicians and their legacies. But although I think it's really funny when someone says, you know what band I heard today? That's really great. And you're thinking like Billy Ellish or like, yeah. <laughs> you know, someone like newer, right. so like Elton John, you're like Elton John, he's been around for half a century. <laughs> like, what? Have you seen the Lion King? <laughs> have you, have you listened to any kind of radio station right right <laughs> like it's just it's always funny when people like discover them and then they're like they never happened before you're like they've always been there right right <laughs> it's true i it, it's it actually makes me happy to see that because their music deserves a deeper look beyond just the hits you know and i think movies like that kind of tend to make people want to look for music beyond the hits Absolutely. And that's, and that's all that counts to me. If we're getting more people interested in music and really great music, I don't care. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And I, I guess my thing with Rockman, I just I, I liked it in the sense that I thought it was it kind of deviated from your standard biopic. Like I thought it was creative the way they had the musical numbers and it was kind of like like kind of fantasy or like almost like magical realism rather than just, you know, this yeah. happened and then this happened. I kind of thought that was fun. I think it would have been more fun to see it in a theater because I saw it at home. Oh. Like I rented it from from the library. So yeah. to me, I that think, might make a difference like, for sure. Like yeah. I saw 1917 the other day, mm-hmm. and I think that's a movie that like you kind of need to see it in a theater to yeah. get the full experience. So maybe 
I could definitely Rocket. see that being a yeah, being an impediment on that. <laughs> Maybe Rocket Band needs to be seen in a theater. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it a lot seeing it on the big screen. And I yeah, I don't know if it would translate as well on on a television set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that yeah, that's I just thought that was fascinating because it's a it's it's not a a very um critically embraced style of movie making, that's for sure. No. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any particular favorite biopics, like music or non-music, that you that you kind of are like your go-to? Um, I gotta think about that um, because there's so many that I, I do genuinely enjoy for different reasons. Because mm-hmm. there's some that are like are like really great, like biopics, and there's some where you just like them because they're just so either campy or they're so um, just awful, like <laughs> or right. they're corny. Right. So like. I, and I think that's like a genre, which it's even debatable if biopics are even a genre, which some people argue they're not. Some people don't think they are. Yeah. But I think, I think it's it really count. funny. I think they are, too. Yeah. Uh, they follow formulate, uh, formula. Um, I think one of the better ones that I could think of on the top of my head was um, like Coal Miner's Daughter was a really great oh, yes, one. I agree. Yeah. That, that's a really um, good one. Um mm-hmm. The um, I can't think. You know what's really funny? I'm on the spot and I can't think of oh, any I'm on sorry. the top of my head. <laughs> no problem. Um, you can you can text no, me like, it later. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. It's just like when you try to think of a few, you're like, uh, I don't think that's one. Um, no, I mean, there's quite a few that are are, are really great. Like the yeah. Joy Division one was really good. Uh, Control. I don't, have you seen I that? I haven't seen that. No. That's a great movie. Uh, um, that was from like about twenty. 2007 i think 2008 um yeah it's about in curtis's life that that's a really i think i remember when it came out and it just i just never got around to being able to see it yeah uh well level tears apart it's not really like the most uplifting story no (laughs) but i'm okay with that i I like a little uh a little darkness here and there (laughs) that's where the new order kicks in no i'm joking (laughs) (laughs) Uh. oh man yeah um so yeah, let's. So I, I guess now's a good time to tell the audience that we are covering the Tina Turner biopic. What's love got to do with it? Which I, um, I have to admit, I saw for the first time just fairly recently, <laughs> and I've I've known about this movie ever since it came out, and I just never had gotten a chance to see it until recently. So, and I really wanted to cover it for this for this uh, podcast and. Nick Nick reached out to me and and we decided we wanted to do it because yeah, I mean Tina Turner come on and she just turned eighty because yeah. that was originally I think was provoked it was yep. Tina Turner just turned eighty last November and there's been so many articles and blogs and um, stuff written about Tina Turner that it only made sense in a way to have an episode focused on what's love got to do with it yep absolutely. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about Tina the person. Like, what was your introduction to Tina Turner? Like, how how did she enter your your radar? How did she enter your life? Hasn't Tina Turner always been in all of our lives somehow? Like <laughs> from the true. beginning, in a weird way. Yeah. No, I think like you know, I think Tina Turner is kind of like not to be funny, but it's true. I think she's always kind of been around, and you know the name. 
but like sometimes you you know you, you don't really realize how many like great songs she performed over the years right and it's like a strange um reevaluation of someone that sometimes the name is more famous than the actual music yeah that's that a good creating. point and i think tina turner is like everyone knows who tina turner is yeah. but do they really know the songs like can you name any of right. like I think everybody would immediately say what's love got to do with it and then they might maybe struggle after that like yeah they, and she's had so many legendary songs like uh, River Deep Mountain High right um, Proud Mary um, The Best mm-hmm. um, the Private Dancer um, Better Be Good to Me all, all those yeah. um, great um, songs uh, but I think like one of my earliest memories I could think of with Tina Turner was so I grew up in the 90s and mm-hmm. I always remember that they used to have on VH1, they would always play like really old episodes of MTV, like <laughs> yes. just random like videos. Yep. Like, do you remember when they used to do that like during the day? Oh, like, they absolutely. Would play, like from like 6 to 10 or 6 to 12, they would play just music videos. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I I grew up know, watching those too. It was great. Yep. Right, like, like like you would see on YouTube today. Like like, And I just remember seeing what's love got to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, huh. I remember about, I guess the mid 90s, I was at a party and I think it was my aunt's house. And I just remember they used to play on VH1 a lot of the times. They would play like music videos, like when they actually played music videos. Right, right. Like what was like the name of their networks was music video. I mean, music uh television or video hits one um yeah back when music actually had a had a place on mtv and vh1 yeah that was like before we were born yes (laughs) um but um no um i just remember them playing like what's love got to do with it and i remember also seeing the the clashes rock the casbah like it was just like those two videos just because i remember the possum going down the like the roads like and and it's just like (laughs) It just stuck with me. And I just always remember like Tina Turner um, in the street and she was like, I think like in a basketball court and she was like singing what's love got to do with it. So I think that's like probably the earliest memory I can think of. Absolutely. That was the first one for me too. And and, um, just seeing her like strut and and that denim jacket and the hair and she just totally took command of the, of the camera. Absolutely. Incredible. And she's an incredible performer. And it's weird to think that a woman at like, what, 43 or 44 would like revitalize her career so much to the point that like she like like it's the greatest comeback story in rock music history, bar none. There's Mm -hmm. no one that comes close to having that second career resurgence like Tina Turner had. And she was like an icon already. And if she stopped with Ike, she would have been a great performer, but she became like a superstar mm-hmm. with in the mid eighties. All on her own. Yep. All, and she did it all by herself. She did. Ike I mean, free. people that helped her of course, but she like, I mean like the people that like help make private dancer, but right. God, like that is just, it's just an amazing story. It's, it's, um, it is amazing. I remember I kind of got to know her through speaking of VH1 was her, behind the music special that would air ad nauseum (laughs) (laughs) and I would watch every time that was on. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And then my first big concert ever was Tina Turner with Lionel Richie. Yeah. That's a weird lineup. Kind of. It was Lionel Richie opened up. This was 1997, 1998. 
1998. And uh, yeah, he opened and then she she took the stage at like 1030 at night and she played till almost one o'clock in the morning. It was she crazy. Is- and I think what's amazing too about her is like for all the the crap that we always hear about, like oh, um, like Tina Turner, like sold out stadiums and like yeah. football stadiums, and she played like I think in Rio de Janeiro, I think it was like three and a half million people. Like who else <laughs> could do that but her? Right, nobody. And it's and it's just by virtue of her name alone, you know. Like you said, she's an icon. People... And no one really dislikes Tina. I mean, right. Well, just take that back. I I can't really think of anyone says like oh I hate Tina Turner like like right. that's like kind of like a crazy thing to say. Yeah, my other introduction to Tina Turner was actually through the Tommy movie. Oh yeah, the Who movie. <laughs> yep. Ken Russell. Yeah. Yep. It's because she was, like she was the acid queen after Ike. Mm-hmm. And that she was still she was pretty well entrenched in in the Ike and Tina Turner review at that point. And um, I guess he he kind of you know loosened the the um the leash a little bit and let her do that role because it was originally supposed to be david bowie who played the acid queen in in the movie (laughs) and then he he backed out to like all right we'll have tina turner do it (laughs) and she also did um background vocals for frank zappa too around that time like she did um oh i can't think of the song on top of my head but it's one of his most famous songs frank zappa which is like weird because frank zappa was like so experimental (laughs) right and like just didn't really he was like the anti-commercial king of the under right right um but yeah she did backup work for him too and it's like weird to think oh montana that was the song montana oh okay Mm. because if you hear like the chorus like it's clearly like you can't distinguish anyone else like that oh yeah she's so distinctive yeah it's like you hear shaka khan on higher love the steamwood winwood song Mm -hmm. you know shaka khan like yeah, <laughs> it's like it's immediately identifiable. Like she outperforms Steve Winwood. Oh, um, but uh, Shaka outperforms like, anybody except maybe Tina Turner. <laughs> Shaka Khan just needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Just, just put her in with or without Rufus. I don't care. Just get her in. Just get her in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Tina Turner was pretty. It's easy to forget like how groundbreaking she was and how early she started in in rock and roll's history you know in the beginning really almost mm-hmm. of rock and roll like like right. she's in the late 50s i think it was 59 that was in the movie that she met ike at his yep. east st louis nightclub show and then you know 1960 the following year um she had a hit with him, A Fool in Love, which is actually one of my favorite Ike and Tina songs. Oh, me too. I it's love it. Very simplistic. It's a nice R&B song. It's not like it, it's it's very tame compared to like the more rougher or edgier or more like rockier songs. It's just mm-hmm. a nice simple R&B song. Oh, For sure. And I guess it was, from what I understand, it was a happy accident in a way that she sang that song because it was supposed to be for a man to sing. And, I know. Yeah. And the guy wasn't available. And uh, he's like, Tina, you do it. Okay. 
<laughs> I she even though it was like her name was Tina Turner, really. I think until she oh, she the was record. yeah, she was she was still anime Bullock at that time. And it's just like, oh, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm Tina Turner now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And that was and Ike the, kind of um, putting his his uh, thumb of control over her and 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 the music wow. at that point. Yeah, always had that thumb over her. Um, yeah. But I think it's really interesting because like when you see in um, what's love got to do with it after rewatching it, I think it's really interesting how you see um, his like shtick when he performed at the St. Louis nightclub where he would, you know, sing like rocket 88, which apparently is one of the first rock and roll songs, even right. though it's like, yeah, you know, it's a fun topic. I think that should be a podcast in itself. Like what is the first rock and roll record? Even though, right. It, it there's, everybody point. has a different answer. I know, and I, I don't even know what the answer is at this point. Right. Um, it just happened. Um, but yeah. um, no, like I think it's really interesting that like how he would sing, and then he would have like the female audience members sing, and like some of the women were just so awful the way that they would sing. Like you're just like, okay, <laughs> take true. that microphone. Like you have no business. <laughs> and then you see Tina Turner, like she's obviously like smitten with Ike, and like trying to get like his attention because she likes him like yeah you know, like when she was just like a bystander in the audience and like i just think it's really funny how like she gets on stage and then he just looks and he's like oh my god like this this woman could actually sing mm-hmm. it, it kind of like knocks like, everybody over yeah and he's like wait who is this kind of <laughs> absolutely and then even like the diner scene after that like he kind of like you could see like in his eyes that like he found his star. He found who's going to help him. Yeah. Just have long lasting popularity. Cause Ike Turner has a really interesting history as well, because he kind of did, of course he was played on rocket 88 or he didn't. That's right. another story in itself, but he was involved with rocket 88. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of throughout the fifties worked with different artists and tried to like do different projects and some worked, some didn't work, but he couldn't really find long-term uh, relationships really like he just yeah. it, it, nothing really lasted right so I think with Tina he was kind of like I got this 18 year old that's barely out of high school let's see what we can do yeah she's talented she's young she's impressionable she just and, moved to the city yeah yeah so he was he was right all ready to jump all over that night and, I, and uh, Tina was very naive in her own way oh absolutely and like you know you see it throughout the first I would say third of the movie you kind of see this woman that's just trying to like she's unique and she has a voice and she's gifted but she doesn't really fit in anywhere that's why i love the opening scene of this movie so much yes i did too it was delightful i I love that little girl because you could tell like she's just like like she puts her own spin on these gospel hymns and songs and <laughs> and the, the choir like, director keeps getting so angry with her like what you stop all that gyration or whatever she was saying <laughs> like she like keeps giving her like a dirty look and then yeah. every time she and she can't help it and that's what i i wrote down actually when i was watching the movie it's like she literally can't help yeah. what she's doing she she just like that's like her 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 natural instinct is to put her spit on it and it's not that she's disrespectful to the gospel hymns or songs it's just that she um that's that's her talent that that she has her voice and her vocal style yeah and that's how she was feeling the music you know that's how she how she you know got her emotion into it and and got you know felt the spirit yeah absolutely 
if yeah. the music moves you, it doesn't matter how you do it. Right, right, exactly. And, it, you know, it's interesting, like, Tina was very kind of groundbreaking in the sense that she was maybe the first or f- certainly one of the first female vocalists to really to deliberately not sing in a feminine way and to, and to emulate her male idols, you know, like Ray Charles and, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of those, those male singers that, mm-hmm. you know, were influenced her. And she's like, I want to sound like that. So I, I don't want to sound like a dainty, dainty woman. I want, I want to be a rock and roll singer. I want to have an edge, you know, and th- she was one of the first really that I can think of to do that. I can't really think of too many on the top of my head like that, either i think it's really interesting because in the movie the mother when they're in the studio and they're recording like their first songs as ike and tina revenue or whatever reiteration they had of it Mm -hmm. um basically i remember the mother and the 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 sister saying she sounds like a man yeah like like why why are you like why does she sound so rough like what like what is wrong with you guys (laughs) yes Like, what are you doing to my daughter, kind of? Right, right. <laughs> like, corrupting her. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's just, <laughs> like, it's really interesting, like, her vocal, like, that's something we forgot with Tina Turner, too, is, like, she's very different in how she sings and how she performs. There's no one like her. You can't distinguish anyone else from her. Right, right. She's a star since day one, because in that church scene, it establishes that, like, this girl's going to be a star, and that this girl is unique. And... Mm-hmm. No one can tame that spirit and that voice. Yeah, absolutely. This movie actually—it's funny. It, it, it parallels uh, *A Star Is Born* an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does. Yeah, with the with the man and the woman, and the you know, one is destructive and one is sent to superstardom. <laughs> <laughs> that's we'll start reborn in this in this in this movie. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. Yeah, at the very end, the star is reborn. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, I was also, I wanted to mention too, before we got into movie, to the movie a little bit more, um, the director, Brian Gibson, um, mm-hmm. he, it looks like he, he doesn't really have a lot of credentials and I don't want to say yeah. credentials. he doesn't really have a lot on his resume. He really only directed maybe one movie every few years. And, um, he did a lot of sticks music videos too. <laughs> um, but he did like the jewer, what's that? Like sticks the band, yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Too much time on his hands. That's I think so. Think. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> For well, sure. We're just elves. Yeah, but maybe I wonder if maybe that's how um, they decided that he was a good fit for the movie because of his. Um... That's so wild because I didn't know his name really either because it's yeah. not like like a, even like a decently known name. We were kind of like, okay, I kind of know who this person is. Yeah, like such a random, <laughs> right person. Yeah, because he he directed the juror from nineteen ninety six, which which was like a Demi Moore, like uh, you know, yeah. law kind of procedural movie. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there really isn't that much else noteworthy in his career. Poltergeist two. Oh well, that's a classic. Yeah, <laughs> but that's really like kind of it for his resume, and that's he and then he weird. passed away in the early early two thousands. So, oh yeah, so just it's it's interesting how. This was kind of like maybe the big triumph of his career. Well, I think also we got to talk about um, the casting for this movie because oh, it's yes. absolutely like, do, do you know like who was supposed to play um, Tina Turner in this? I do not. I know the words. There were many, many people who auditioned. But the one who was offered the role and turned it down 
was Whitney Houston. Oh man. I, I and this mm. was like and it's really weird because like Halle Berry and Pam Greer, um, and even Janet Jackson and Vanessa Williams, they were all auditioned for the role or were considered for the role. Yeah. But it was supposedly given to Whitney Houston. And I think to myself, like, I, I just don't see it. I, I don't see it either. Anyone else but Angela Bassett in this role. And Angela yeah. Bassett's a great actress. Like I thought she did phenomenal. Yeah. She totally she earned phenomenal. her Oscar nomination. And like you can't see anyone else in this role except for Angela Bassett. Just like right. Lawrence Fishburne was like the only person I think that could play Ike. Yeah. Hun- and, absolutely. Like, and he turned it down five times to the the producers. He just said like he didn't really think there was anything redeeming about Ike yeah. Turner. Like it, it's just like it just didn't really yeah, he said um, he didn't want to play him unless he unless he was really seen as a three dimensional person rather than a two dimensional villain. Yeah, even though the movie kind of still makes him kind of like a two dimensional. <laughs> yeah, it does. It doesn't really outline Ike's real life mental issues and bipolar issues that well. But I think it could have definitely, like, it definitely could have like stretched him out a little. Like, yeah maybe understand why he is the way it's because in the movie which we'll talk about later it comes out of nowhere almost it does like, yeah and you're just like wait wait this is not the same guy that was like you know you need to go to the dentist because i think you have cavities mm-hmm. and like this caring guy or like right. fatherly almost fatherly figure to tina right and in real life tina was warned by people that he had mental issues and that he yeah, was unstable that's what, that's what i was like I wish it would have went more into depth than that. But right. Florence Whitburn only picked, like, he turned out five times because it was, like, right after Boys in the Hood. So he was pretty, yeah. like, a hot name at that time, like a like a, like a well-established actor. And then he um, only took it because Angela Bassett signed on. Because right. Angela Bassett's, like, an Ivy League graduate. Like, she and she's a great actress. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, you kind of, he was like, okay, like, at least we have someone that I can work with, a, I know we'll do a great job. And she sounded amazing as Tina Turner, like to perform and move like her and yeah. talk like her. Like, and she only prepared for this movie like a month or two before it started production. That's crazy. Yeah, she gets all her mannerisms perfectly. I know. It's it's like, it's, it's such a wonderful performance. Yeah. And, like, yes, and I know she was intimidated it. too, I think, because she does not think, you know, she doesn't consider herself a singer at all. Like she yeah. said, she, she's like, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, so I didn't really want to play this role. But man, does she kill it? She absolutely does. And and like Lawrence Fishburne sings in the movie, and he sounds just like Ike. It's like scary almost. Yeah, it you're is. Like you're like, who is that? Right, right. <laughs> it's amazing. Where, where did like Lawrence Fishburne begin and Ike Turner end? Like it's like we don't yeah. know. Right, right. <laughs> maybe he doesn't either. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to maybe get into the story a little bit? Sure. Okay. I kind of had a little bit of a, a, a summary of, of what's love got to do with it. Um, usually I, I try to put one like at the beginning-ish before we start like talking about the, the story itself. So I put that um, Angela Bassett plays Anna Mae Bullock, who's a blossoming starlet from Nutbush, Tennessee, soon to become the legendary Tina Turner. As an aspiring singer, Anna Mae is taken under the wing of, of rock titan Ike Turner, who names her, weds her, and ultimately helps her to launch her into stardom. But as her star rises, Ike's abuse and drug habit starts to escalate, leaving Tina to fight for her life and her freedom. So that's that was I tried to keep it real short and sweet. <laughs> that's a pretty good summary of this movie. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, okay, we're over tonight. Have a good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. 
<laughs> I'm kidding. Um, Just let the after show. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to I tried to encapsulate as much as I could. So, um, yeah. So the, it's I, I mean the story of the movie is pretty commonly known now, but I I've always kind of wondered is it because of the movie that it is or is it or had was it just kind of common knowledge throughout the years see i think it was the movie because i think people knew something was wrong yeah like like there was something like 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 not quite right with their marriage but i don't think people realized the extent of her abuse and it wasn't even just physical abuse it was also emotional and, and um psychological abuse right right absolutely I mean, like if you like one of the scenes that um and we can talk about the movie for a minute is like you know you see her him for the first like i would say 30 40 minutes of the movie he seems like this really nice caring guy almost like he's too good to be true for being a big name star singer or performer right and and then like you you see the moment that it all kind of changes is when they're in 1960 in New York and they're doing that revenue show with um, Otis Redding and Martha Vandellas and she just had a child and she um, uh, her throat is kind of like give it out on her and she doesn't know if she, she could perform or not and he's so unsympathetic to her and he's just more or less like you better go on stage yeah. like or else mm-hmm. and then like the scene that always resonates with me or one of the scenes that always resonated with me is when she's on stage and you see like a tear shed through um, from her eyes. Oh yeah. And then like, you know that like, you don't know. And like the, and it's like this facade almost because the audience thinks it's because like she found her big break and mm-hmm. you know, like I found the love of my life and I'm on, you know, I finally made my dream come true. Yeah. Like, like it's supposed to be like this, like feel good moment, like in their eyes, but in right. her eyes it's because she can't really sing. And like when you, even hear her perform a fool in love with um ike and i guess you could tell like her voice is very off and like she's like you know it's very rough right and she and she's very um it takes her a while to kind of get into the song yeah like she's definitely relying on the background uh the the backup singers for sure like right they're pulling the weight you know almost and she's just kind of like not there, but she's just like she's just trying the best she can with her voice given out on her. Right, and that's really the first time we also, as the film's audience, really get a get a window into that. You know that what's really going on. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's such an important scene because then it kind of goes downhill from there. Right, really quickly, <laughs> like really fast. Like, and then you're just like, oh my god, with this marriage is just falling apart before very. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I think too, like when they're kind of getting to know each other, you can sort of get like a like a a, a sense of their rapport together that something yeah. is a little off or that maybe it's like, mm, I don't know if if they're either one of them are in it for exactly the right reasons. At least that's the impression I kind of got. Well, I feel like they both need it's like kind of a bizarre relationship in a way because mm. it's like they both need each other like he needed her to sell records and, you know, achieve success and fame. Yeah. Like he needed Tina Turner, but she also needed him to have the stage name and the platform to 
be a star. It's like a really weird um, give and take relationship. It's like they really both kind of need each other, even though they're definitely not good for each other, like at all. Right. It's it's an extremely toxic relationship. Oh, absolutely. And it's just like, yeah, it's bizarre, though, their their relationship. It is. You know, I, I think interestingly, because Ike Turner has had, if you count both before and after Tina, I think he's had at least roughly a dozen marriages, if not more like closer to 13, 14. Nobody knows for sure, for sure. Um, because I think he also like didn't officially divorce some people when he got married, especially again, especially early in his life. Yeah. With Tina Turner, like technically they got married in, in, in uh, Mexico and it technically it's not right. a legal marriage because he was didn't divorce his other wife. Right. Exactly. And I think the thing that made Tina was such a, challenge him in a way because she's so she seemed to have a little bit more fortitude at least in her in what she wanted than i'm sure maybe a lot of the other other women that he dated did because ike knew how much talent she had and and what you know how bankable she was as a star and she really didn't and she had also had quite a backbone too i mean oh yeah yeah and i think that was i think that was very um for him, that was very challenging and very. I, th- I think in some ways he almost liked that too. Yeah, it's kind of like it, it, it's it's just a strange relationship because yeah. like she because she also like in the movie you see too like she always she kind of made a few excuses for him like oh like with Jackie which I think that's another conversation too right like, just make up characters just to fit this narrative um no but like. It's really interesting because, like, she kind of, like, makes light of it. And then, like, you think about yourself, like, wait a second, he, like, physically hits you. And he, yeah. like, is very emotionally abusive towards you. Like, this isn't really something to joke around or, like, just like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, no, it is a big deal. Right, right. <laughs> it is a huge deal. And it, it, it's insane because, like, if you think about it, like, throughout the movie, especially, like, middle of the movie and especially towards the end he's there she's surrounded by innate they're like ike and tina they're surrounded by enablers who like are really there for really drugs right or like just for their music connections or like they're not looking out for her well-being either no not at all they're really everybody's kind of using her even her own mother because if you remember Mm -hmm. like the father left um T- or, or, or like like the parents like lo- like split and i guess the father left or the mother left i forgot which which one i think it was the father the mother right uh yes yep mm-hmm. so the mother left her so like you she already has this like she like trust issues or like the disconnected family yeah but then you see like when Ike comes to the house at the beginning of the film he basically gives her money <laughs> the mother mm-hmm. and like well can i ha- can i have her you know perform with me and he gives out a few hundreds and she's like she puts it in her shirt and she's just like okay <laughs> and then even like when like she picks up the kids after they record um i guess river deep mountain high i guess after that scene you yeah see, with um, like phil I, specter yeah yeah and then like that's another story which we will talk about later yes um <laughs> with, with uh tina and ike um yeah. but um it's really fascinating because like the like she calls the mother says like I'm leaving Ike I'm taking the kids we're gonna go to I guess St. Louis or Tennessee or wherever the mother's at 
And then mm. the next scene when they're on the bus and then you're thinking like, oh, she escaped him. And he's there <laughs> and you're just like, son of a gun. Like the mother like sold, sold her out. Right. She came from her mother. It's unbelievable. <laughs> She's just getting it from everybody. Tia just can't win. No, she really can't. Although in the end, ultimately, she she did come out oh, on top. Oh, she persevered. She really did. What a what a role model! Like I want to I want to be Tina Turner. I think everybody, regardless of gender, we oh, should all yeah. try to be Tina Turner. Absolutely, like that kind of strength and and perseverance. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but it's true. Like it, it, it just even her her family life is just really strained and. And just it's just a really unfortunate situation. It's stuff that could have been like preventable. Like I don't yeah. know. It seems like a lot of unnecessary, like tragedies and occurrences that just made her life so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even like now, ever you know, up until like just the last couple of years, even with all her health issues and you know and everything she's been dealing with, like she's really still such a survivor. You know. Oh, absolutely, and. It's the old. It's really the ultimate survivor story. It, it really is. It is. And to go back to um, the movie for a second, it, it's just interesting how, like, as the movie progresses, and I think this is where we start to see the discontent or like the the marriage kind of falling apart before our eyes. Is like it's Ike and Tina Turner. That's the stage name, but mm. it's very clear even earlier in their career that she's the star like he's yeah. just there and even like if you think about like all their records like you hear him like barely on the records like i mean he plays guitar and instruments or whatever but like he's kind of not there it's really like tina turner <laughs> like yeah <laughs> even when you hear like proud mary you're just like he's just this rolling like i don't know like he doesn't really like i mean it, it is like yes very like unique and it's great like mm-hmm. music. but it's like it's clearly like she's the star of this this uh duo oh totally yeah ike was really just ike was calling the shots but it but when it came to actually delivering the goods it was all tina oh absolutely and then like you see her like they start chanting like tina and that gets to him and like even like phil specter like when he went backstage after i guess it was american bandstand i assume mm-hmm. that and like they did shake a tail feather. And yes, see, that was a great like, performance. Which I hate to say, like, and I'm just gonna talk about this scene because I think it's it's comical because it's so yeah. absurd. I just love that, like, when you see American Bandstand, you see um, Ike and Tia doing their shake a tail feather routine or performance, and then you see like Phil Spector come from the audience, and like it's only Phil Spector because yes. who wears sunglasses in a in a closed studio, right? <laughs> it's just so weird and like i i guess maybe like we're we just have to know but like it's clearly full specter and then you just see him go backstage and he says i only want to work with tina <laughs> and you know that just killed ike right <laughs> and I, that was like his magnum opus was river deep mountain high yeah and, and it's such like, an underrated pop song
worked so hard on that record, like the best musicians, the best like vocalists, like he yeah. put his like heart and soul. I think it took him longer to record that than any other song he ever made. And it was mm-hmm. a flop here in the States, but it did well elsewhere, but really in the U.S. Yeah. And he didn't his condition for doing the song was that Ike would not be in the in studio the while he was doing it. Right. <laughs> They didn't mention that part, but yeah, it was so like volatile their relationship with um, Phil Spector and Ike Turner that like they couldn't be in the same room. He was like, yeah. "I can't have you in the same room." Well, when we we see how Phil Spector ended up too, <laughs> so you well, could only oh, imagine the sparks that flew between those. Did it come up later? I promise you. When we talk, oh, about that's true. Yeah, you did say that. Yeah, something <laughs> else. But yeah, it's just really interesting though how like. That it's a Tina song. It's really not Ike. It says Ike and Tina Turner, but it's clearly Tina Turner. Hundred percent. You never hear Ike once in the song, and he doesn't no. play on the song. No, but it's just he had to have that piece of the pie. Absolutely, and then yeah. Ike wasn't going to say no to the money either. Oh, absolutely not. I just love like in the scene, like you can see, like he's clearly like mad and just rage filled with. And, and, but he's like, but money talks though, because like I'm sure Full Specter paid him a lot of money just not to perform on that song. I'm sure he did, just to keep his, you know, to keep him to himself and not intervene. Yep. Yeah, it's it's, that's, it's the, incredible. Can we talk about the cake scene? Can we please? Please, please. Okay, so like I think that that is the most one of the most bizarre scenes of any movie I could think of. <laughs> yes. It really, truly is, Josh, because you you hear. Um, like like Ike is clearly off his rocker, high mm-hmm. off, high as a kite, probably <laughs> drunk as a skunk. Oh, he he! Everything you could possibly probably get into your system, he was under the influence of. Another like uh um yeah, but like it's just interesting because like he's just he's just out of it in this scene, and you see like him order a like a a a, a whole cake which is like very weird and he takes it with his bare hands and just starts eating the cake <laughs> he doesn't like, oh can i have like a knife and a fork and a plate like you know a normal person right no and he just says to tia turner because like oh have some cake and she's like no <laughs> he like shoves the cake in her face and then he causes this huge scene and like slaps her and i think the friend too i think jackie yeah that's right and then like you're just looking like oh my god this is in public and like he keeps telling them to like mind their own business well he says a lot of exp- uh ver- a lot of vulgarities are going on yeah. in that scene oh yeah and he's like mind your own business he and probably would have he would have probably taken out like really the customers good. too at the restaurant too if he if if he were allowed to i'm sure he would have probably just like smacked everybody in that restaurant Oh, I know. It's like he had no. It was like tunnel vision. He had no control over his rage. Yep. Between all the drugs and between him being, you know, his mentally unstable condition, as it were, like all that stuff just built and built and built on each other until it just got real ugly. And then he has the nerve to like say, "Who who's gonna pick clean up this mess?" And then he says, "Oh, this cake really is good." And you're just <laughs> yes, like, I, like, what it's is wrong so, with this guy? It just shows the the somebody who's at their mental stability low point. You know, it just it just it doesn't get any lower than that. I don't think. And then the weirdest part about this whole scene, and I don't know if you know this, it didn't even really happen in real life. Yeah. I know. 
It's like the, one of the most famous scenes in this whole movie. Right. And it didn't even happen. It really, it's, it's stuff like that. I think that maybe the movie kind of doesn't get right in terms of bringing some nuance to Ike Turner's character, which is what yeah. Lawrence Fishburne was really fighting for. Yeah, like, like at least, like, make him, like, like, at least try to, like, understand why is he the way he is. Exactly. Not that, just, like, this guy's just a lunatic at a diner, just uh, <laughs> causing a scene. Just and, ranting and raving and embarrassing everybody he's with. And hitting people and throwing things. Yeah. He's just this, like, vital, like, vile person in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and, 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 but it's just weird. Yeah, but he's really nothing more than a mustache twirling villain, you know. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Yeah, but it, I, I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more depth in him, um, just much in the way that that Lawrence Fishburne felt as well. And it's weird because, like, the first like I would say third movie, it takes its time to like develop this story in a weird way, like like how they like you know like her beginnings and her meeting. Uh, Ike Turner and the start of their duo and partnership. Mm-hmm. It takes its time, and then like it just it goes really fast. It does. Once it hits at the certain, once it gets to the abusive part of the relationship, the movie just kind of barrels through time real quickly. Absolutely, and then you're just like, wait, why did this happen? And right, like, and I think yeah, and I think part of it relies on shock value a bit too. Maybe sure. maybe almost a bit too much at times because they were really there's. We would mention earlier that there was some really messed up and disturbing stuff in this movie. And between that's the other thing I was going to mention now is when they're recording. Um, a few years later, they have um, "Nutbush City Limits." That was yes. a song that Tina wrote, mm-hmm. and like she's singing the song. And I thought she did a fine job when, like, in the studio, like when she was recording it with that group of people, like his enablers and yeah. friends or druggies or whatever. They're. <laughs> they were i don't know their purpose the people that were in the the house yeah they were probably just you know his his uh his brethren (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) um and and like i thought she did fine singing the song like it's like tina turner you really can't go wrong i don't think yeah she could sing like he keeps like any he's again high as a kite and he basically says like you suck yep and like it needs to be better and she's like well how do you want it better? Like, like, what do you want? What do you want me to specifically do to make it better? And he just says simply be better. Kind of like, that's his name. And you're just like, what? That's not really a reason. Right. And he's just setting her up to be beaten because he's in, he's in, he's in a place. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you see him, he, he forces everyone out of the house because, you know, he's not really happy with her recording the song. That she wrote, like, right. he says to her, you don't know the lyrics, but she wrote the song, and she's singing the lyrics right. Yeah. Like, it's a weird scene, and then, like, it takes a really uh, 180 when everyone leaves, and then he goes to the studio, and basic- and he, he rapes her. It's so awful. He, he it, ties her up. It's unwatchable. And... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to kind of, like, look away. It was. It's really, it's really raw and very upsetting. It, it just comes out of nowhere and yeah. like you hear this woman in in pain and mm-hmm. like and then like that scene is just so overwhelming and so traumatic and so um violent yeah that like then the next scene we see her um 
do a, an overdose, which, by the way, she didn't overdose after that because it really happened, I think, in 68 or like like years earlier. So mm-hmm. like, the timeline is is wrong with in this sense, like right? Because she, yeah, overdose. she she tried to she tried to um to try tried to kill herself in the late 60s by overdo- overdosing on pills. Yep. So like in the movie, it makes it seem like it's after Nush, but I'm sorry, Nutbush City Limits, which was like 72, 73. Yeah. But like it was really years earlier. But then like, you know, it's she wanted to kill herself. And then like in the ambulance, he basically says to her, like, if you don't, if you don't make out of this, I'm going to kill you. And it's just like, what, what, what can this woman do at this point to like, like she she's in a lose lose situation, you know, and that's, and you know, that's how abusive relationships tend to play out. You know, when one, when one party has the upper hand, there's absolutely nothing that the other one can do unless they completely cut ties, you know? And she just, and she, and she just wanted the pain to go away and yeah. the heartache and this guy is just And so... the fear. Cause she never, I, I can't imagine she would ever really, you never knew what kind of mood he would be in. No, he's so unpredictable. Yeah. And like, and then you think to yourself, like in the next, like when she eventually gets home, it's like, he's just like, oh, you just like had a, like you caused some scene and like now I have to pay all these hospital bills. Like, it's like someone's unsympathetic that like, you know, of his actions mm-hmm. and the consequences of his actions that I don't know. It's just and like. It, and it becomes with him, it becomes one of those situations of, oh, you made me do it. You know, I, yeah. I'm sorry, but if you had if you had been different, it wouldn't have happened. It's placing blame on the victim. Yes. Which is like so unhealthy and so like backwards. Thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you did this to yourself. And it's it. a calm, very common control te- tactic. It's so absurd. Yeah. You know, and I, it's funny with like, the, going back to the studio scene with Nutbush City Limits. In reality, like that's why Ike Turner loved being in the studio so much because he was able to exert his control so much. Whereas on stage, yeah, as on stage, he didn't have as much control over the finished product because what happened happened. And he's a total control freak. Yeah, like in every aspect of her life, like he literally tried to manipulate every aspect of her life, oversee everything Mm -hmm. to his. the version of Tina he wanted. Yeah, exactly. But that, that's those two scenes, but especially the one we were just talking about. It was just like, oh my goodness, like what is what is wrong with this guy? Mm-hmm. And then also the scene too when she says, and this was from a few scenes earlier. So it was like in, in between the diner scene and the um, the um, the the revenue. Oh show yeah. Where, mm-hmm. When when she says to him at their California house. Um, you don't have a unique sound. You sound like everybody you else. You sound like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, oh no, she just like. She is her off. own. She's her own woman. Yeah. And and like, I don't think she was wrong to say that, but like yeah. that just put him through like to a twenty. Yeah, and I think, and that's a perfect example of of her kind of like I said how she. Wasn't afraid to really rise up and challenge him. No, she wasn't. And I think that's part of why he was so drawn to her. And even in his later years, you know, years after she had left him and became her own superstar, like he still never really got over her. And I think he was intrigued by that there was actually a woman who was not afraid. And I think that like she's just one of those people that I think like 
it's like I think like what we were saying before. I think it's like they both needed each other, yeah, for different reasons, and like, but it's also absurd, like the things that she went through to to perform with him and to be with him. You're just like, oh man, like I mean, because and you got to remember too, like you know, for the abusive relationships, it's not as easy as to say like, oh, she could just walk away. Like, there's a lot to consider, right. Mm-hmm. And, then, and and sometimes people are in denial. Like you see her throughout the movie, she makes like like towards the end when she talks to Jackie, and she says like she's making fun of Ike and the way he like puts down people and talks to people and acts towards people. And then she breaks down like halfway through her conversation because she realizes that's how she talks to him or how he talks to her. You know, and, and she almost has like a breakdown. She has to sit down because she's just like, oh my god, wait a second, he, this is how he talks to me. Yes, like, wait a minute. This is this is a pattern here. Because she's in denial too, but like I mean, there's so much going on in her life. Like she's always performing and and recording music and doing things that it's like taking the step taking a step back and saying, like, okay, wait a second, this is not a good relationship. Yeah, because see they were so packed their tour schedule, they toured like three hundred 50 days a year or something like that and yeah. it, it didn't give her any time to actually like to do any kind of reflecting on her life you know and if you think about it, she toured really since she was out of high school like she was mm-hmm. always on the road she was always like in the public um consciousness yeah and it's just like fascinating to think that she's now 80 years old but like she, it, it's just that she had to take a step back and then that's kind of like one of the turn points in the movie too because she discovers buddhism and then she has the courage to like stand up more to ike mm-hmm. and question ike and, she, and she's like a almost like you know a, a person who who doesn't care about the consequences she's like what are you gonna do hit me you, you right hit me as it is one of my favorite scenes actually is the limo scene Oh, we have to talk about. Let's yeah. talk about. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When when she actually, it's, that's when she reaches her tipping point. She rips off his earring. She kicks mm-hmm. him in the, the groin. Right, because he's starting with her, and she's like, "Oh no, no, I'm not in the mood today." And she, <laughs> and so she's like, "You know what? If you can't beat him, join him." And so, <laughs> if you can't beat him, beat him harder. So <laughs> and it goes on for like a few minutes. They're fighting, and you're just like, "Oh, it's brutal!" Oh, and then you keep like seeing yourself, like, "Oh no, she's gonna really like go out and like it's like full Ike mode." Yeah. which I know that's really bad to say, but, but like, no, I mean, she's but she was like a pressure cooker for 10, 15 years with this man. You and know? then she fights back, and she fights dirty, and she's like, "I don't care. Like, I'm just yep. gonna, I'm gonna scratch you." I'm going yep. to get out of that car. Yep. I'm surprised you jump out of the car. Oh, me neither. I was funny. I was thinking when I was watching that scene, I'm like, does the limo driver not realize that there's like a physical <laughs> altercation happening in the back of his limo? Cause he's just, you know, they're just driving. Yeah. They're just like, <laughs> doing this. And then like, be like, Hey, everything, everything okay back there. <laughs> Wait a second. Th- do I hear like, like something being, on the window, like, right. like what's going on here? <laughs> hey, there's there's champagne in the in the uh, cooler back in the back seat. Help I'll yourself. Blood on the seats, you know. It's not a <laughs> right. Big deal. right. <laughs> and I think the best part is when they get out of the limo and then they go to the the concierge and they're just like, like nothing happened. They're all bloody, yeah. and their faces are all like bloody and battered. Yeah. Um, I love the look on both of their faces when they walk up there. They're both just like scowling. 
<laughs> she's got a fat lip and he's he's got a black eye. <laughs> it is it's not supposed to be That's funny. Worst part. <laughs> that exactly, yeah. It's not it's not supposed to be funny, but it, it sort of there's a little bit of levity in there. Oh, absolutely. And then yeah. you think to yourself, like, wait a second, they gotta perform a show mm-hmm. as a married couple on stage and like they're all bloody and beaten and you're just like what is going on here? <laughs> but then she makes her getaway. Very smart that she did because yep. she um, waited till he fell asleep. He said, look pretty, which I don't know how you could look. Pre- no offense to Tina Turner. She's a very beautiful woman. Yeah. Um, but how do you look pretty after you, all the things that you just did to her and the, right. the blood and, oh, it's just awful. And then like, and then she went across the highway, which I don't know how she didn't, get get hit by a car but yeah, that scene is so well choreographed because she's just like stopping and going in between it's it's like she's playing crossy road or something the tina turner version <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's weird because at the hotel that they're staying at like the ritz or whatever like nice hotel it was yeah they're like mrs turner mrs turner and then she just runs and darts off <laughs> yes and everyone just looks and you're just like oh she like like then everyone's gonna be like well where's tina which i didn't think was smart on her part because then you know, if she wanted to leave, like she right. should be very like smooth, like more sl- like sly. But like I don't right. blame her though because like she she just did like what she just went through. Like yeah, no one I kind of saw that as like a like her kind of sending a warning call to everybody there, like like make it like she wanted to be seen on purpose so that people would know what she was going through and maybe she could get some help. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. Because then you see her across the highway, and again in high heels. I don't know how she didn't get hit by a car. Like that's a miracle. It's amazing. In well, itself, and then she goes to the Ramada Inn across yep. the highway, and she says, "Literally, I'm Tina Turner. I don't. I think I have like 32 cents in my mm-hmm. in my name right now. Can you give me a room? I'll pay you back." And then I thought it was that was actually the best one of the best scenes in the movie. Is I agree. The, the guy in the Dallas hotel, he's like. Mrs. Turner, I'm a fan, absolutely. Like, yeah, I he's totally incredulous towards her. Like, he's so like understanding, and he knows something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he was a little starstruck too. He's like, "Oh my god, it's Tina Turner, like and, one of the most famous people in the world." Yep. <laughs> but he was so sweet to her, and and you know, and it was it was that was a really cool scene. Absolutely, and then you said to yourself, like, she's free, mm-hmm. in a way. And, like, that scene just moved me because it was just, like, okay, like, this guy has helped Tina get a room. Ike's not going to know who, where she is. Right. And and then you see the divorce here, and, oh, my goodness, that, that, Ike's demeanor was just, (laughs) he must have known that he was, like, he didn't have a prayer. And then, like, he was clearly on something and clearly just, like, I think the the judge asked him, like, can you remove your sunglasses? And he's like, and he gets into, like, (laughs) his chick, like, well, why do I have to listen to you? Right. (laughs) You're just like, oh, my God. Like, that's not going to help your case, man. No. (laughs) And he's just so, like, unlikable. And you're just like, come on, Ike. Yeah. (laughs) But but anyway, good for Tina, because it just shows how terrible he is. It was great when the judge said, you know, you realize what's at stake here if you relinquish everything to him for this divorce. And she's oh. like, I don't, I don't care. I just, as long as, as long as I keep one thing, my name, 
my stage name. Yep. That's all she wanted. And he was like, no, this is my family name and my blood name. And then you yep. think he was like, wait a second, your blood name? You like literally <laughs> hit her and blood came out. It's yeah, like, yeah. You? Like, How's that for some symbolism? Yeah. Like my blood name. Come on, Ike. Like, <laughs> and, and then the thing is, is like, she's a famous person. Like, like she can't just like change her name either. Yeah. And people aren't going to ever call her like another name. She's Tina Turner. Right. Like comes, come to, to anime Bullock's re, um, revival tour, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, like, I just love that the judge was like, okay, everything goes to Ike. And then you think to yourself like, oh my God, like this is a terrible raw deal on her part. Like, why would she want to do this? I mean, because I mean, she only had like 36 cents and like a gas credit card and that was it. That's mm-hmm. all. Because Ike, Ike got all her money. He took everything from her. He had all the 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 recordings, the publishing rights. Yeah. The, the he said clothes and. I think even the like, money that she would have gotten from any kind of performing and royalties, I think he he would have taken it right from her too. You know. Yeah. And he I was just like, I won. Yep, and I and honestly, she probably had a mentality of you know what, I have nothing to lose. I only have my life to gain. So take it all. I don't care. As long as I can be Tina Turner and do my thing, you you stay away from me. I don't care. I, I can build my own life. Exactly. And she's like, I will persevere and I will yeah. do something. Because he kept saying, like, you'll be nothing without me. Like, yep. I need you. And it's just like. The usual, on. the yeah, usual abusive partner kind of gaslighting stuff he was pulling on her. Oh, I know. This whole movie, I feel like, is gaslighting, especially towards the end. Yes. Like, come on. Oh, then, the like, end is, ugh, that made me so mad. Oh, my God. And then, like, and then you have, like, Tina after the court. And then you think to yourself, like, she's crazy, kind of. Like, a 40-year-old woman, her prospects were not good to have a comeback. Yeah. It's almost unprecedented in terms of, like, getting a, a, a second career, especially after you were so popular and famous with your for sure home. for sure that i yeah i can't think of any other time when that would have happened because i mean middle-aged Cher. women are not sh- sure that's of. a good example yeah share absolutely um but at that time period you know in the early 80s that was not that was very unusual time period for something like that to happen and rock music as a really traditional rock music was kind of on the downhill in yeah. the 80s like like that's when like a lot of your classic rockers like neil young or the who or the Rolling stones that was kind of like they were becoming like nostalgia acts yeah that's that's kind of when they first were hitting the oldie circuit and then that's when you saw like the rise of like newer bands and artists that would dominate the charts and become popular and it was like, like the like post-punk and, and getting into like new wave kind of thing mtv generation started so it's kind of like this is when like Video literally killed the radio star. Yeah, yeah. And it became just as much about the image as it did about the music. Absolutely. And then and then it, it's really sad when you see Tina perform Disco Inferno at like that hotel. Yeah. And you're really just like, cheesy oh. Vegas act kind of thing, yeah. And she's given everything she's got in this performance. And you know what? The audience is loving it. They're eating it right up. <laughs> and you're just like, this is one of the best live performers ever. Yep. Regardless of gender, Tina Turner is like one of the greatest live performers. And I think it really like got her mad when I think he said like oldie or like 
all-time favorite. He said something like yeah. the MC something like that. And she's like, "Are you kidding me? Like, like that, I'm, I'm so much better than this." Here. The producer was in the audience, so he's like listening, and it's like San Francisco, 1980. Yeah, and you're like, she's like this nostalgia act, but he sees something in her and says, "I think you could become a big star again." And she's kind of like, I've got nothing to lose. Right before she started performing that night, they show her backstage and she looks out into the audience and she kind of gasps, oh, it's that producer. He's 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 here to see me. I, she's like, I got to impress him. I got to do my best. And so she's, you know, she's telling all the girls to <laughs> to get Make ready. Sure you're on point tonight. Yes. <laughs> if not, you know. You know I wonder, if, I wonder if they were former iCats. <laughs> oh, the iCats. <laughs> And then, like, you see her, and then this metamorphosis of her life and career, it takes another 180, because then you see her finally getting control of her life and image. Like, I mean, yeah, there were, like, songwriters and producers that helped yeah. revitalize her image, but Tina Turner was at the forefront of it. Like, there's no denying that. 100%. She was she was a real trailblazer in Absolutely. that way. And then, like... And then, like, when you see Ike, okay, first of all, the scene when he's at the in the car and he's waiting for her with, like, the roses and wants to talk to her. And you know he clearly wants to hit her up for money. And then, like, he That was a creepy scene, I, I found. That scene just kind of gave me the willies because it was, he was so unrelenting. The Tina Turner in 1983, I guess, when that scene was, I'm assuming, because that's when Private Dancer is being made. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, like, no, like she's done with you like leave her alone yeah well i think with ike the problem was that he took so much advanced money from promoters and record company mm. and all, all all these people and he wasn't really making good on the the promises like either he wasn't recording or he kind of like didn't really perform at shows or was like inebriated like yeah. there's just a magnitude of things that were going on with him yeah that... he he snorted his fortune away that's for sure oh he did yeah he, with you know one nostril at a time yeah honestly like it was to the point i i saw that he it was so extreme that he like actually like the septum of his nose actually started to like deteriorate and 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 like he had to have like surgery to have it fixed because it was so his addiction was so severe it's 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 really like a, a sad case because like clearly this man has talent like there's yeah. no denying that Ike Turner had a gift for songwriting and production work. Oh but yeah, he's he's likable human being. Yeah, he's he's a despicable person. But I mean, like you can't deny his place as a founding father of rock and roll. Whether or not you know Rocket eighty eight is truly the first rock and roll song ever, that's you know that we'll never know that answer for sure. But it, it, we can't deny his place as as a founding father, you know, and. Um, <laughs> And there's plenty of bad people in rock and roll. Like of course. rock and roll isn't really the place for role models either. Right, right. Like, <laughs> for sure. Like your Chuck Berries and your uh, Phil Spectors and Sid Viciouses. Like they're, they're these are not the, they're very shady people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you see Ike in that scene, and you just say to yourself, like, oh no, he's gonna do something like stupid. And then you see him like uh, violently attack the sun. Uh, like, I guess when they were watching MTV for, like, an interview with Tina or whatever it was, and he says, like, oh, I think they have a hit on you or something bad will happen to you because she was getting ready for that uh, that that show that she was yep. at, like, her, like, comeback show as the new Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. And 
first of all, how did he get backstage? And did this that's really that's the part that scared me. It's like, that's creepy that he's able to do that. And not even that, like, they clearly had to know, like, the security people and her, 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 like, entourage and producers and... Oh yeah, like look out, look out for the, for Ike Turner. Like it's like, he, don't let Ike in. Yeah, <laughs> and then you think to yourself, like he has a gun, and you're just like thinking, like, oh my god, is he gonna like like kill her mm-hmm. or shoot her? Or, yeah, like, it's so it's, demented. It's a very like um, traumatic scene, and it's kind of like you have no idea where this is going. Mm-hmm. And then she says to him, like, I'm not afraid of you. That doesn't scare me. She's a really fearless lady. Apparently, like, he had undiagnosed bipolar disorder, which it, it oh, totally makes sense. You know, it, it doesn't justify or excuse anything, of course. But, I mean, it's consistent with what, you know, with the symptoms of bipolar. I love the irony of, of that, that courtroom scene. Ostensibly, he, he left with everything. She left with nothing. But how quickly it becomes that she's the one who, who ends up getting everything and he's left with nothing after all is said and done, you know? And, you know, it's sad thing about Ike Turner, too. The Another thing that makes him interesting that would have been kind of neat to kind of cover in this movie is that in the beginning of, of when he first started as a career, even at the beginning of Ike and Tina Turner, he was very anti-drug. He, he, I know. That's the yeah. part. Yeah, he would, you know, he would get upset when people were doing drugs and then he kind of slowly became introduced to cocaine and he found that it it, it calmed him and maybe it was sort of like him, if he had some kind of, you know, diagnosable mental state, maybe it was sort of like a pseudo stabilizer for him in a way, but it, it ended up, you know, clearly it's not, but, you know. And I'm really curious if a lot of the drug use had to do with their um, unforgiven schedule, like Mm-hmm. Oh, that was that's true because he he liked the idea that when you're on when you're you know high on coke you don't require as much sleep so that's 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 a big part of it for sure absolutely and then we see at the end we see um of course the performance of what's love got to do with it and that's like her comeback hit mm-hmm. and then we see like halfway to our song we see it uh, morphed from angela bassett performing the scene her to the actual Tina Turner performing. Yeah, that's a cool that's a cool segue. It's such a nice, like, feel good moment because you're just like, what's love got to do with it? And it's just like mm-hmm. this notion that love had nothing and I think it's almost to me personally, and this is just my opinion, the song to me resonates this woman who had nothing to lose, everything to gain, and love had nothing to do with her keeping um, her stage name. It was yeah. to to look out for herself and to um, build off of something that, like, you, you, like I was saying, like it's almost like impossible to imagine a woman in her forties becoming a viable pop star or rock star and yeah. resonating in their career. And love had nothing to do with um, her her wanted to keep the Turner name. It was just a business move on her part. But to me, that's how I always thought of that song. Like, I don't think it's a love song at all. I think it's just like her, like, it had nothing to do with It's kind I of, thought. it's almost like her mission statement. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because she really didn't like that song when it was first, when it was first presented to her. I'll be <laughs> honest, like, it's not one of my favorite Tina songs because I think it's so overplayed. Yeah, it's not a great song. It's actually kind of, for a hit single, it's kind of a weird song. Like it's not, it's not a fast song. It's like this weird mid-tempo, loopy synthesizers, and it's not even that melodic. It's 
very strange song. And I, yeah, and I, I, it's not it's not one of my favorites either. And she she didn't want to do the song. She had to kind of be convinced to do it by her production team. <laughs> I don't know what what's love got to do with it. Like it is a good song, I guess. It's just I think that's like the one of the only songs that like most people can think of with Tina Turner, which is like yeah. such a thing. It's her only true radio staple. Yeah, because even like Proud Mary was a hit and even River Deep on High, they really don't get as much traction no. as that. No, even something like Private Dancer, they don't play on the radio anymore. Every once in a blue moon, you'll hear maybe like Simply the Best. Or... I think because of Shit's Creek. Yeah, yeah. But even even before that, like every every now and then, you'd hear I'd hear it at like a grocery store or something. Or, or either that or like You Better Be Good to Me. That would be weird to hear Private Dancer at the gro- grocery store. I know. <laughs> it's I mean, like, it's Knopfler, happened. <laughs> you know Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits actually wrote that song? Yes, and, yes. Um, and he was going to perform it, but then he was like, wait a second, I don't think this is a good Dire Straits song for me to sing. Right. Tina <laughs> Turner because, you know, she was forging her comeback and he respected her. And yeah. he played guitar on the song. It goes back to one of the um, more interesting, I guess, like kind of cute moments in the movie when um, she's meeting with the producer and they're, they're kind of talking about what they, you know, what they want their career, her career to look like now that she's getting signed and she's kind mm-hmm. of staging her comeback. And she makes a, d- a deliberate point of saying, I'm tired of the R&B stuff. I want to I want to sing rock and roll. A lot of my idols, like her buddy Mick Jagger, like I love seeing old pictures of her in the 70s like with David Mick Jagger Bowie. and David good. Bowie. Yeah, exactly. Like she wanted to be like her contemporaries that she came to fame with, you know, and and um, and this was as weird because Tina Turner also with her solo career. I mean, she became a rock star again because I always thought she was a rock star, like a hundred percent. Yeah, very but much it's so. Really interesting because she kind of became like adult contemporary star. Yes, yeah, that's true. Like she but, sang ballads. Hmm. But I think you know. But I think almost like the, her her genre of music is almost irrelevant to the Tina Turner the persona because her persona truly is rock and roll. It, it translates, and and what's really fascinating about her comeback too is because it, it opened up to the MTV generation. But mm-hmm. I think it's really great that we had Tina Turner in her forties become like an MTV star. Yes. Yep. And it's just wild to think like, I don't know if that could happen today in a weird way. Yeah. You know, it's funny as we're talking about that. I was thinking that how, you know, how unprecedented it was, but I think the MTV takeover really worked to her advantage. Cause she's such a visual. A visual. Absolutely. Yep. Even just like beyond just, you know, like those gorgeous long legs. But I mean, just the fact that she can move and she's mm-hmm. so, she's just so captivating to watch. And she, and it's really weird because like even like what's love got to do with it. She doesn't do anything really the whole video. She just walks around the streets. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's just kind of being herself and, you know. She's, it's this level of empowerment and the sense of um, freedom Mm-hmm. And you see that in the video, and you clearly see it in, in like the videos that would later air. And she just became this like staple of the '80s, which I, I would venture to guess, in my opinion, she's one of the definitive figures of '80s popular music. Yep. I mean, you can't talk about the '80s, I don't think, without that Private Dancer album. That was such a monster hit. Yeah, that's a watershed '80s album. And it just opened up to new audiences, and like 
you have people dress up like Tina Turner, and it was just and 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 and, and talk like her and try sing like her, and just try to be like her, and mm-hmm. she got the last laugh in this. Um, after leaving Ike, like yeah, you know, for so sure, against her from ever succeeding again. Yep, and I'm you know, and also I, I'm sure her 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 spirituality also kind of gave her a lot of that um, confidence to be able to 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 get to that point. You know, like she's oh, her, so her, involved her, in her Buddhism. You know, yeah, and and like that opening scene, like with the credits, it like, kind of like lays out the whole movie, like something about like something with like the mud. Like I would have to look up the the specific quote that starts the movie, but it kind of sets up the entire movie. And it was like this like Buddhist um, saying or phrase. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, like, I remember that. Yep. Like, I, I can't think of what it was, but something like you rise out of the mud and you become more beautiful. Yep. Yeah. It's a really cool quote. And you're just like, this is her story in a nutshell. So I think what's really great about this movie is that it introduced and reintroduced audiences to Tina Turner Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, she is one of the greatest rock performers ever. Mm -hmm. And that she's just this legendary figure. And she's been around for what, 25 years before that. Oh, at least probably 30, 35 years. If you consider like full in love came out in like 1961, you know, it solidified her legacy. I I think when this movie came out and she did it by herself. Yeah. Like, Absolutely, and, and, and there's something to say about that. There's there's so much like and you and, and, and it's it's a story of perseverance and a story of um uh def, defying the odds. Yep, and I know um, Ike Ike and his and his future wives felt a little perjured by it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I think what's really interesting is is that, and we were talking before because you know as as you probably know and I said in the introduction I write about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes almost exclusively and it's really fascinating to think that tina turner solo is not in the rock and roll hall of fame it's mind-boggling it's uh, i i yeah i don't even have words for that there literally are no words because it's just it's such a moronic oversight like Mm -hmm. it's like how can you put name and we're not going to denigrate any names we won't say any names because i don't want to how can you never mind i was like (laughs) x yeah, not X because I I wrote about X and then they're fantastic. Yeah. Not X. Why? <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you put bands Y in the on the ballot but not Tina Turner? It's unbelievable. She's been eligible it, it, for like twenty two years since nineteen ninety eight. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she would been at first ballot, but you think with you know her ailing health and her like electrifying live performances that she did. I mean, she stopped touring like about 10 years ago. How in the world do you pass up a big name like Tina Turner? Do, do people, because Ike and Tina Turner are in together. Absolutely. Okay. And yes, they should be. I fully support that. Yes. Do people not think that she's that like, do people assume that, Oh, she's already in because she's already in with Ike and Tina. I think it's the scenario that, they, it's under the misconception that, oh, she's already in the Hall of Fame as Tina Turner. Well, no offense. Paul Simon is inducted with Simon and Garfunkel. Yes. And inducted as a solo artist. Because it's totally different from his days as Simon with his uh, yep. Simon and Garfunkel. And Paul Simon as a singer-songwriter in the 70s and to today is totally different. And they inducted 
both um, uh, times of his career. Yeah. And, like, why can't the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have the audacity to put Tina Turner on the ballot? And no offense to Stevie Nicks. I think she's a great performer. Yeah. It's a, it's a disgrace that Carol King, Tina Turner, oh, she's another one. Diana Ross yeah. become the first two-time Hall of Fame inductee that was a woman. Like, nothing against Stevie Nicks. Like, yes, she is an important figure. Yeah. But I mean... Tina really should have been the first double inductee, female double inductee. Like, Tina should have been just for everything she went through. If she only did Private Dancer, she's in the Hall of Fame in my book. Oh, a thousand percent. But like, like she King. was the most, uh, maybe in the top five most successful live acts to ever grace the stage. She held the Guinness Book of World Records. I think she still does for having the, the solo performer who sold the most tickets ever. Mm-hmm. Regardless of gender, she played to a show of 3.5 million people in Rio de Janeiro. Yep. Like, she's toured the world. She's recorded, like, songs that, I mean, that were monumental, huge hits in the 80s and into the 90s. Mm-hmm. She did the, the James Bond song. Um, for yeah. Gold, for, um, um, oh, Goldeneye. Goldeneye, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to say Goldfinger. I'm like, no, that's from the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Goldeneye. Um, and um, no, it is just a disgrace that, you know, and this is why, like, on the latest episode of Who Hears About the Rock Call, they, Evelyn McDonald, who, you know, as a person who writes about the Rock Hall of Fame, she wrote that really great piece on the mishandling um, of rock and roll and called out the Hall of Fame, rightfully so, for, you know, like, I think it's like 7.8% or 8%. It's like, it's a, it's a pathetic statistic. Yeah. <laughs> that, like of the women who are inducted into the hall of fame. And, you know, she mentioned on this last episode from a few days ago that if I could pick someone to be on, on the ballot next year, it would be Tina Turner. And, and until Tina's inducted as a solo artist, she will forever be tethered to her abuser. And that's, exactly. and that's not only an affront to her, that's an affront to her fans. It's an affront to every woman who's ever been battered. Exactly. It, as far as I'm concerned. It's literally to me, and I'm saying this figuratively, but seriously, it's like a slap in the face. To, it to is. Both. It's that like. It's incredibly deeply offensive. If any man experienced the level of abuse or even the slightest bit of a comeback that Tina Turner had, they would have been inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist years yep. before. Oh, yeah. I mean, how can we get to other two-time inductees like and not and not acknowledge the accomplishments of Tina Turner as a trailblazer mm-hmm. for not only um other like musicians, but just women in general and people yep. in general, but she will overcome it. I think she will get inducted. I think if Whitney yeah. gets inducted because we're recording this before the the inductees are announced. Right. When he gets in, it would not be a stretch, in my opinion, to see someone like Tina Turner on the ballot next year. Yeah, I agree. If you look at eighty women in the eighties, you have to talk about Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. sure, you have your Cindy Loppers, you have your um, your Sade, you have um, uh, Gloria Estefan, you have all these women. But mm-hmm. I feel like Tina Turner also just stands out. She towers above all of them, in my opinion. She's simply the best. She's she really really better than all the rest. 
<laughs> well, Nick, this has been it's such such a pleasure. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Josh. You're welcome. I, I, I hope you I hope you had as much fun as I did. Oh, it was a blast. We got to talk about the Rock and Roll of Fame. We got to talk about Tina Turner. Is there really anything better? There, not that I can think of. That's for sure. <laughs> we we <laughs> should we should do this more often. Yeah, I mean, anytime you want to come on, you're you're welcome to. Just just throw a title at me, and I'm 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 open to doing it. So, thank you again for having me. You're welcome. So be, before we wrap up, I just want to um, just for the listeners, um, just real quick, like give us some of your your info. Like where can we find you on Twitter and um, you know, if, if anybody wants to, to connect with you, where, where can we do that? Sure. So my Twitter handle is Nick D Bambach. Um, and it's B A M B A C H, um, at Twitter. And then I also have my website where I write, uh, semi-frequently and most of my blogs focus on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it's, uh, the auto visual repository, um, kind of like this, like hodgepodge of different things that I'm interested in. Usually it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, movies, stuff like that. It's a great kind of resource for the Hall of Fame. I, it's You're one of my um, go-tos when I'm, I'm trying to parse out my feelings about nominees and what have you. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, it, it, it's a lot of big things going on. Yeah. Um, I have a really big project that's going to come out, I think, this summer that I'm going to try to slowly work on. Oh, all right. So for, for me, for listeners who want to get in contact with me, um, the podcast email address is movies at rockpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at rockmoviespod. And please leave a, a review on iTunes or I guess Apple Podcasts is what it is now. Um, it's always good to have the feedback, positive or negative. You know, I I can take, I can take it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I won't read the negative, but feel free to leave a negative. Review. <laughs> um, like like says on the rock, who cares about rock five stars only. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Anyone else don't waste your time. <laughs> yeah, really. No, this was a blast. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. 